Hello, and welcome to the Four Color Nerds Cut the Cord podcast, episode eight. I'm Hannah, and I'm joined by some other streaming media nerds, Mal. Hello. Alistair. Hello. And Ryan. Hello. Together, we take on television for those who have cast off the tyranny of their local cable provider. Each week, we gather here to find a great show to watch from the often overwhelming variety of shows to choose from. We review the prior week's selection, then we pick a new show and do it all over again. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. This week's show is I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. The theme song of the movie is I Can't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, performed by the Carter family. Let's take a listen. This world is not my home, I'm just passing through. My treasures and my hopes are all beyond the blue. For many friends and kindred have gone on before, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Over in glory land, there is no dying there. The saints are shouting victory and singing everywhere. I hear the voice of them that I have heard before, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. I quite enjoyed it, actually. It was just a good little bit of uh, theme music set up well. Yeah, she also listened to a lot of country music. And a bit of blues. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think that those two styles of music really fit the feel for this show. And they also kind of cross over and are married to each other. Oh, definitely. That is one thing I did really enjoy about the show. I know we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but I think the sound design on this is really well done. The music was great. It didn't interfere, did it? I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore was written and directed by Macon Blair. It's starring Melanie Lazinski as Ruth, Elijah Wood as Tony, David Yao as Marshall, Jane Levy as Dez and Devin Gray as Christian. The production companies are Film Science and XYZ Films. It was the winner of the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance 2017 and it's distributed by Netflix. The movie starts with Melanie Lazinski as Ruth going about her normal life noticing that people are just assholes to each other and she's kind of having a lot of trouble dealing with that that particular day and then she gets home and And she has found that somebody has broken into her house and stolen her laptop, her grandmother's silver, and her medications, which are not things that'll get you high because it's an antidepressant and an anti-anxiety drug. So that's nice. So she's already, you know, not feeling so great. And then they stole her stuff and her medicine. And the police aren't super helpful. They're kind of victim-blamey, like, hey, lock your back door. They're also assholes. They're also assholes. <laughs> and make serious mistakes in both procedure and the law. A little bit, yeah. A very obvious, the detective assigned to her case does not care. And this is kind of a recurring theme. So she's very fed up with things. And she notices Tony, played by Elijah Wood, walking his adorable dog. And she even has a sign in her front yard. It's a little poop with a cross through it. And he just lets his dog poo in her yard. And he's been doing that for quite a while. 
so she gets pissed off and picks it up and then she throws it at him doesn't she yeah yeah she does she doesn't hit him she doesn't hit him she just kind of throws it in his general direction and is like pick up after your dog Ah!" she's just kind of flipping out on him and he's super apologetic and then when the police are less than helpful she kind of starts canvassing the neighborhood asking them questions and runs into him again and he's totally like gung-ho like i'm gonna help you out can i break in here really quickly and talk about the way tony is coded because this was my first big problem with this movie is tony is so heavily coded as neurodivergent without them actually trying to talk about what that means for him in this situation that it really made the whole thing rough i do think you're correct that that probably is an issue that he has to me it seems like he's undiagnosed because he doesn't use those words either but the things that he describes seem to reflect that do you feel comfortable talking a little bit more about that mal yeah full disclosure i am neurodivergent myself this will be a little bit biased i'm on the autism spectrum do you also understand neurodivergent to cover other mental differences and mental health issues okay Yes, in the scene where she's in Tony's backyard, where he will flip a switch between ways he views and deals with the world. This is something I see a lot in myself, as well as some of my friends who are also on the spectrum. And thankfully, it wasn't being played for laughs, but the fact that it was it just shown and tossed aside, not even Ruth really remarks about, are you okay? One of my major themes in the way I see this movie is missed opportunities. And this is a big one. If you're going to have a character like this, look at it. Talk about what it means for this character to be in the world. I think he was Mm -hmm. totally, completely not self-aware. He had no personal sense of irony. And I don't know if that's a sign of autism. Yes. Tony just seems completely unaware of himself in the world. He has no, as I said, self-awareness. And is that a sign of mm-hmm. autism? I don't know enough about the subject to comment. In general, and I'm speaking here as a, a layperson, you know, and probably Mal can explain it a little better, understanding other people's emotions and your place in, like, social interactions, that's a difficulty. Both lack of insight and what's called maladaptive empathy are both really big features. He understands that people are feeling a certain way, but doesn't respond to it in an appropriate fashion. So that opens up a whole new aspect of this film for me now. Realising that he may be autistic, it completely changes my perception of the character who I originally thought was this sort of nerdy, sort of bookish guy really trying to be something he naturally wasn't, which I kind of feel like Elijah Wood is uh, typecast. Has been for about 30 years. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that Tony is one of the characters and the narrative focuses on a female character character and she I guess it's kind of a throwaway that she's mentally ill but the neurodivergent one in this case is the buddy and also kind of the romantic interest-ish maybe I don't know there seems to be an intimacy between them especially at the very last thing I was thinking as Mal was talking that it, it kind of turned the trope of the neurodivergent girlfriend slash friend I think it's a subset of the manic pixie dream girl who's just kind kind of up for anything and launches this kind of adventure kind of thing. And so here we have a female protagonist and her neurodivergent buddy who kind of urges her on to do wild and somewhat nutty things, quote unquote. And to go further with that, just thinking about it from this entirely new aspect for me, there's a whole load of personality disorders in this Oh yeah. Oh yes. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah. sociopathy, <laughs> narcissism. Yes. Cult-like following. Right. Drug addiction. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Christian Devin Gray. Christian is the guy who breaks into Root's house, it turns out. I guess he's kind of on a major drug bender after getting kicked out of his narcissistic father's house. But he's definitely on that sociopathy spectrum. <laughs> there. I love his introduction. <laughs> We're skipping ahead slightly here. When we first see him, and I just thought there's absolutely nothing redeeming about this person. It seemed a little cartoonish in a way. Yeah. He's there, and you just see this expression, then you realize what he's doing. Oh, yeah. And oh. <laughs> Giving him an upper decker. Yeah, and then we find out later he beats the crap out of that guy in the driveway, and the detective is yelling at Ruth for being so concerned about her quote unquote little robbery when a guy got beat to death in his driveway. And I think that that was the homeowner mm-hmm. guy that had confronted That's Christian. Right. I think they're definitely linked. One thing we were talking a little bit about Ruth and her depression. One thing I found really interesting is once they figured out the medicine that was taken from her, they completely kind of dismissed oh, yes. everything she had to say and yes. labeled her as that. Oh, yes. we're going to put you in the crazy box now. And <laughs> we don't care anything yep. that you say because we know that we can just disregard everything. We can just write you off because you're obviously mentally and then when she got the GPS signal from her laptop, I wanted to start screaming at my TV when they said, all we can do is amend your report. No, you can send a unit over to her house, see that there is a GPS signal that lets you approach the house where it's at. I thought I was taking crazy pills at that point. But then, you know, being a stranger to these lands, I don't know exactly how police <laughs> operate. Yeah, I think that they were right that they needed to have a little bit more of probable cause to go. Use the fact of the GPS signal to approach the house and knock on the door. For me, this goes back to the whole thing of the police just absolutely dismissing her. And I understand if the police didn't, there wouldn't be any story. Trying to tell narrative here where no one cares about anyone else. No one does what they're supposed to do. You know, so that feeds into it. Like this movie to me, clearly the person who made this is a big fan of the Coen brothers because this movie follows Mm -hmm. their formula really well. Like it reminds me of like Blood Simple, Fargo, Mm -hmm. Raising Arizona. I mean like pick any Coen brothers movie and it fits into this this really well. skewed world perception where no yeah. one does what they're supposed to do and everyone's like unkind yeah. to each other. Yes, and then there's a crime spree that idiots are involved in that just goes drastically wrong and keeps getting worse and worse until someone ends up in a wood chipper or dead in the woods. Oh. <laughs> yeah. What does it say that in the third act the hero is the snake, okay? <laughs> Bit in the face with a water moccasin. (laughs) There's a lot of karmic justice and injustice. Like, basically everybody who's very awful ends up dying rather violently. The violence in this movie is completely unapologetic, yet it works. It is. I used this before, it's cartoonish. Uh, When it happens, it's bloody (sighs) and graphic and yeah. comes out of nowhere very shocking and i feel like it's pretty realistic doesn't particularly linger on the gore and i appreciate that like it happens like it's violent and disturbing but it's not like right. torture porn or anything like that it happens and it's part of the story but i think it gets away with it because it doesn't as you say linger one interesting thing to yeah. me is none of the violence in here is really the intent of the people in the scene it all either happens very quickly as things kind of spiral out of control and then it just gets worse Mm -hmm. and worse and worse 
with the exception of what happened yeah. at the consignment shop. There, he very much was just trying to hurt Ruth when he broke her finger. Well, I mean, Ruth was stealing from him. Yeah. You know? Stealing with him and then hitting yeah. him in the face. You didn't expect it, right. this old man suddenly... Yeah, the finger. Oh, God. I mean, he is trying to stop. I'm sure, like, every 99% of pawn shop owners, sorry, pawn shop owners, knows that most of his stuff is, like, stolen goods. Oh, of course not. How's he going to make his money? He's crossed that line between yeah. pawn yeah. shop and fence. I think he's pretty much got his <laughs> legs in the fence pool. And uh... One thing I did think that this movie did really well was it kind of has parts where it's very different movies. Like, it does the kind of, the world sucks, people are terrible. It does kind of the almost romantic relationship building part. It has its almost horror mm-hmm. film ending. That suspenseful scene in the house where everything, the tension is just ratcheting up. Especially when they call for the father oh, yeah. downstairs. Yes. And you're like, oh! Yes. Stops and goes back and gets his gun. Right. He smells a rat. I appreciate how everything is in there for a purpose. There aren't any like throwaway details. Like the sawed-off shotgun is rusty and ancient and poorly maintained and they complain about it and then it explodes in someone's face. It's Chekhov shotgun. It's Chekhov shotgun, I was going to say. Yeah, it's Chekhov shotgun. There's Chekhov snake, Chekhov guns. <laughs> they do telegraph very well, but the delivery is very satisfying. So that's, I think, yes. a very redeeming yeah. thing about it. And it sets up a lot of really good tension because you know it's coming and you expect it every time, but it doesn't quite happen in the way you think it's going to happen. I think this could have been better written, but this was incredibly well directed. I thought the writing was pretty solid, personally. I think yeah, at I certain like it points tight. they get a little maybe cartoonish, the violence and yeah. some of the people's reactions. Especially their very, very last exchange when he's kind of taunting her. What is it that he says? He's like, Have you ever eaten the flesh of a cat? Yeah, have you ever eaten a cat? That's actually an old thing. That's, yeah. That really is a, like an old sort of historical thing. Eat a cat, become invisible. It's like the hand of glory for a thief, you know? I mean, we've mentioned the snake. We've mentioned how everyone suffers like retribution who's wicked in this i really feel like this movie is a morality tell here and they also i can tell they're trying to make some commentary about religion but i'm not quite sure what it is they're saying about it but religion does feature in the movie and it's there they don't really comment on it very much but i think that they especially when you have the person being kind of undone by a serpent i think that you're tying into christianity there heavily i mean obviously the serpent and you know the justice visited upon this earth ish but i don't think it's super in your face i think it is more about the search for meaning and that you know satisfying that existential angst of like why do bad things happen to good people Mm -hmm. why are people so bad and why are people drawn together to each other i think there are strong aspects of family that go throughout this film so we see the woman by herself lost her only relative her grandmother she goes and sees a perfect family a couple and their child and and you see that aspect of what could be and then uh, you have this family of thieves and I was picking up on that when I first saw them together I was thinking immediately Fagin from Oliver Twist yeah that came together and I think character Marshall uh, was very much Mm -hmm. that sort of Fagin-y 
aspect, but then it sort of twisted into the Bill Sykes aspect of Oliver Twist. I really felt that strong. And the policeman with his wife, another <laughs> family breaking up, yeah. and the dysfunctional family of, of Christian's parents, you know, the blonde bimbo and the self-obsessed narcissist. And really interesting ways that all the different ways families come together or, or break yeah. apart, as it seems. One of the sequences that I love, just for how unreal it is in its reality, was when the security people come in and you're hearing them call out the names of the room saying it's Claire, it's Claire and they get to Walden Pond room and it's like, okay, yeah we really (laughs) have just gone that far What is that one? I did really also appreciate the cinematography and like the camera work in here and the way that the camera kind of sets Mm -hmm. up the scenes and what it shows you or doesn't show you. Like they're very clever with the way they do it. Like there's Mm -hmm. a point you mentioned when she goes to the family, friend's family, after she's robbed and she's spilling her heart out and you think she's probably talking to the person's mother and it cuts to that she's supposed to be reading a bedtime story to the little kid. Yeah. Yes. That's really good. There's a shot that I actually really enjoyed at the end where you kind of see Tony and he's got like the light behind him and they're talking about how he's yeah. like I think they even say he's in a better place now or something like that and you think like oh this is like an angel watching over her and then it cuts to he's at the barbecue with the sun behind him I just yeah. think that the way they played with that camera work was pretty clever yeah that was really good and I think that if it had been a male main protagonist that there would have been some sex just being honest I appreciate that there was no waking up in bed next to each other it was implied at one point but then they clarified and it was like what ryan was saying it was sort of they play with you again with that they sort of suggest it and then they walk away from it fooled you yeah it was good i think they're building an actual deeper relationship than that than just a sexual relationship like that may have happened or may come later but that's not her focus right now the story itself is the thin end of the wedge and it's how something critical can change someone's life and that's you know obviously when all stories a story doesn't happen when i'm just going to work and living our life something has to catalyze so just that thing and you see the ripples throughout the person's life the thing is it took me a little too far beyond suspension of disbelief at some point yeah it became this sort of like really really okay i think it personally lost mm-hmm. me in that way when the security guard was clearing the house oh yes i got just before that when they pretended to be police and i'm like are you kidding me okay here we go <laughs> i like the fact that she was honest when she said yes i'm talking to them because i was bored <laughs> I knew. Obviously, they're not police officers, but this is interesting. (laughs) Yeah, like it's something that's happening right now. Like, I've known people in situations like that, and they would totally kind of do something like that. I don't know if necessarily, like, sit Mm -hmm. them down and offer them coffee was what would go on, but there would definitely be a discussion. I feel like the film starts out realistic and then moves gradually more and more towards, you might say cartoon, you might say fable or parable. It moves more and more to the unreal Mm -hmm spectrum of things. I actually almost felt voyeuristic because it felt like I was reading somebody's therapy journal. I really think that the writer-director has had something bad happen to them and this was their catharsis. You know, and I think somebody that's really focused on like existentialism in this way, like I agree with that, like maybe, you know, something has happened and they're searching for meaning Mm -hmm. and they've gotten there and they're like oh, well, I can write an interesting story about it. Well, I succeeded. It's definitely an interesting story. I want to touch on drugs being portrayed in this film and every time Ruth 
gets high, she seems to come to these realisations. So the first one is she's getting high with her friend on the sofa and she realises in herself that no one's going to help her. This is it. This is how I've got to be now. She says it. She basically spells the, the baseline of the film in the script. Like, why are people such, you know, so awful to each other? And I think she comes to that realisation she has to take action there. And I remember also straight after she gets her finger broken mm-hmm. in the fences shop, <laughs> she's getting high on painkillers, like sort of like wicked and that clarity comes after that scene as well. Mm-hmm. I think you're right that the drugs here are kind of like portals to different places. Like when Christian, after he robs this place and he goes to fence it, there's like the mysterious, almost like witch woman in the woods who draws him into this other world of this campfire where they're all, I think they're doing heroin, but I'm not 100% sure. Actually, it looked more like they were doing speed. Yeah, they were doing IV <laughs> meth, which is be- super bad for you. Don't do that, kids. Yeah, drugs are bad, I think we've given okay. that warning before. <laughs> Drugs are bad. Don't do intravenous drugs. One of the drugs. great things about this movie, yes, I actually do have good opinion, is the fact that there were so many little things. Christian is giving the jewelry he took to Marshall, and you see Marshall just reach out and be almost tender with him in the way he praises him. Yes. It, it's such a little shot, and you can yeah. almost miss it. But that's one of the things that really kept me hooked. There is an understanding of the human condition. This is what somebody might actually be needing in their life. Which he's definitely not getting from his parents. I think it reinforces a sense of belonging and family from there. That he's not only getting the drugs from this, he's also, this is his new family unit. They're just awful people. (laughs) Just dreadful people. I I wanted to talk about the police officer a bit more. I mean, he's played a very minor role in that. The way he gaslights Ruth Mm. is just, it's awful. And you can see it as being a real thing. Cop at his desk, had enough, got this crazy woman he can't get rid of, and then just makes it all like it's her fault you know do i come to your place and tell you how to do your job like well no you should be doing your goddamn job (laughs) like oh i'm sorry you're a public servant the evidence she brings him he actually cannot use i mean there's no chain of custody or anything like that but he doesn't explain any of that to her he doesn't say can't link this to occurring at the time of the event and tell her why he can't actually follow up on it he's just like you're crazy i've got more important things to worry about go away and it's so realistic of Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, how things shake out with a detective who's checked out and either overextended or anybody who's in kind of a public servant role and they're just burnt out and, you know, not really there anymore. I've dealt with a lot of victims advocacy and it's kind of a, a frustrating thing to deal with and, and they don't understand how the impact of the trauma that the person that they're working with has experienced or they're just really really checked out of it. Combine that with what he already knows about the victim. She's already on antidepressants and loading that much back on top. I think she does really well for, uh, you know, to stand up for herself, you know. She doesn't lie down and just take it. She sticks up. That's huge. That's important. Mm -hmm. She leans into that rumble, as Brene Brown would say. I think that lawn sign is a really good marker of the before and after. That before, Ruth was kind of passive and that obviously Tony has taken his dog around and had it crap on her lawn many times and rather than saying Mm -hmm. something to him she put up the sign as kind of a passive action but the new Ruth who's been spurred into her call to action now is taking an active role in the world and confronting him directly so I think that's literally a a sign marker of the change yeah and she kind of she goes from too passive to too aggressive (laughs) yes and then uh, way too aggressive and then settles back in the poor giraffe (laughs) (laughs) giraffe she took my giraffe. Uh, <laughs> it was impressive. 
impressive. I mean, that was some really good art, too. That was, yeah. Like, I remember seeing that and being like, you know, what the fuck, that's a little bit tacky, but I'm kind of impressed. Speaking about that, when she went and took the lawn tiger that they had, it's almost like she's, like, <laughs> claiming her... Her tiger. Yes, her own inner tiger. Coming back to Tony, his reaction to that shows a disconnect between the world he's perceiving and the world he's experiencing. Because, generally speaking, a person would realize that the lengths to which she has already gone, this would not necessarily be out of character for her to do, but he was honestly shocked that she took it. Yes. Yes. Well, I think he felt all of the other things were righteous, and this was wrong. Well, I wanted to put uh, just a call out to the special effects that were used in this film. Though they were subtle, they were very effective. Oh, yeah. I really liked the uh, comic vomit spray. Yeah, it just kept coming and coming. Very different from Santa Clarita Diet, where it just coated the room, but it was still a little bit absurd. And I also like the choice of leaving that happening in the background. Like, they didn't focus (laughs) in on her. It was just, this is happening in the background. The fact that it happened every time a gun went off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That was really good. And the shotgun to the hand. Oh. And the fact that that happened in a wide shot. We weren't zoomed in on it. Yeah. But you knew it was coming. And then it happened and you were like, still like, oh shit. <laughs> oh, the cringe. The thing that made that scene watchable for me, because I don't do well with a lot of gore, was the fact that it just kept moving to the next element. Mm-hmm. It didn't let you stop and process what you had just seen. Yes, the pacing was out stand in that scene. I really thought they carried that out very well. Bang! Someone gets shot. There's sort of a pause while he gets the stuff out of the safe and then everything just kicks off. Someone does something. The yelling sh- and the shooting and the... And everything, everything was over, what, in like 15 seconds or something? About that, yeah. It was a really quick shot. It must have taken ages to film. I do want to call out to that finale as well. Uh, we talked about it at the beginning. The snake. Yes. Yeah. Oh, man. The chase through the woods, the taunting, the turn around at the end, the, mm-hmm. and the absolute finale was, was cracking, I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I enjoyed it very much. It felt very tense, and I felt like we were in a different movie at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that tonal shift kind of reminds me of From Dust to Dawn in that aspect, <laughs> in that you're in one movie, then suddenly you're in another, and then suddenly you're in yet another movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they all flow together well. It's not mm-hmm. abrupt. Ruth has a terrible taste in beer. I suppose oh. it makes so relatable. Yeah. The product placement for Cause Light was just critical. Oh <laughs> she lives in Portland. This movie is filmed and set in Portland. There are okay, many yeah. better beer choices here. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. The way she hammers them down, it really speaks to that she's not she's savoring her beer experience. She is self-medicating. Yes, yes, and yes. maybe she should cut back on that and, and give her meds a little bit of a chance to work. Because, you know. Th- that's what they're made for. Right, (laughs) (laughs) that's what they're for, and the alcohol just it just in the pot just kind of interfere with that a little bit. So that's my little rant. (laughs) Don't do drugs, especially IV drugs. Savor your beer. Psychotropic meds. Uh, You know, savor your beer and give your psychotropic meds a chance to work, guys. Listen to the professional. (laughs) We are nothing if not socially responsible (laughs) podcast. I do believe, I don't know if it was for this or another one of our podcasts, I do believe one of the episodes was Don't Do Drugs, Kids. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to give it three and a half really awkward chest presses. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I enjoyed that a lot, actually.
I give it four. Put the tiger back. <laughs> I will give it four and a half serpents in the woods. And I would give it four shurikens to the face. Ooh, yes. <laughs> That's how yes. hard I threw it. <laughs> oh god, the moment when he's pulling it out of the <laughs> wall. <laughs> that was almost a minute. I mean, god. <laughs> <laughs> he's just like that's how hard I threw it. Up there. Come here. <laughs> just completely unaware of self is amazing. I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. Every week we bring a show to consider watching. We each vote for a show and we cannot vote for our own show. The show with the most votes is our next show to watch and review. I'm gonna go ahead and nominate Ultimate Beastmaster. It's distributed by Netflix, and one of the hosts is Terry Crews, and it's basically a uh, competition show format where different countries have their their beast, and uh, they're competing to see who is the ultimate Beastmaster, just for something a little light. A little lighter, yeah. A little light, yeah. <laughs> I will nominate Love from Netflix. Season two just came out. We would go back and watch season one. So this is a kind of romantic comedy that is about two sort of very damaged, like seems like a lot of our stuff is, right? Two very damaged people who kind of collide into each other and then you see their relationship forming. Season one is one of my favorite shows. I haven't seen season two yet, but it's awkward. It's funny. It's realistic. It's a Judd Apatow series. Mm -hmm. It's not as heavily like stoner comedy as a lot of his other stuff is. There are drugs in here, but they're not really presented in a positive light. It's more like, it's almost like these people are in like recovery, sort of, and Mm -hmm. then going in and out of it. And it's a really good show. It's funny. It's heartfelt. I really enjoyed it. I think we should watch it. I would like to nominate King Cobra on Netflix. It's a docu-dramedy, kind of, about contract dispute and pay equity, murder and arson in the gay porn world. Based on very, very real events. And for me, as is my first time, I saw Trevor Noah, Afraid of the Dark, listed something coming out on Netflix. I really like Trevor Noah. I think he's amazing. He's South African, really smart. Just uh, recently, you know, 2015, become uh, host of uh, The Daily Show. And I, I'd like to see his uh, contribution in film. I put my back behind Trevor Afraid of the Dark. All right, so then we vote. I'm going to go with Afraid of the Dark, Trevor Noah. I will also vote for Trevor Noah, Afraid of the Dark. I'm going to break the chain here and vote for my pick last week, Ultimate Beastmaster. And uh, ironically, I also want to watch Ultimate Beastmaster. Oh, so what happens on a tie? Okay, tiebreaker. There are double secret tiebreaking rules, which I almost always mess up, but I will do my very best here to actually do them correctly. So the way it works is the person who has not had a show picked for the longest amount of time is the person whose show we go with. So not me. So not you. So that would be Alistair, and his pick was Trevor Noah, Afraid of the Dark. Yes! Okay. I am the victor. (laughs) Just bask in your applause. And there was much rejoicing. Yay! So, that was I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. You can find all kinds of nerd shenanigans, including our other podcasts, Four Color Nerds Comic Book Reviews and Broke Gaming, at fourcolornerds.com or on our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram, and you can find the podcast on iTunes and Google Play Music, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, and on Podcast Addict. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to come back next week for another episode. Until then, keep streaming, nerds!